Right. Good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians. We're going to continue our journey through 2 Corinthians. Uh, before I get started here, I'm just going to share a, a prayer request. So uh, about a month ago, uh, Tamara, Tam, I call her Tam, you call her Tamara, my wife, <laughs> uh, about a month ago, she was diagnosed with cancer. So um, it's very good prognosis. I want to tell you, it's a, it's a 90% survival rate at 15 years. So it's a very good prognosis. Um, but because of that, we'll, I'll have some sporadic time off and on. Um, so things have kind of moved swiftly. So like next week, I'm gonna, we're going to be gone Tuesday through Thursday. Uh, she's going to get surgery Thursday. And uh, then we'll have to go from there. There's a myriad of tests and all that kind of stuff. So all that to be said, uh, please pray for her. And we'll, we'll take it. Um, but I, I want to stress, and she goes, don't tell everyone because they have to pay attention to me. So, uh, <laughs> so the, the, the point is not to garner attention for Tam, that you call Tamara. The, uh, <laughs> it's just to, to be aware. And so, like, we had a communication class that's kind of been canceled for now. The women's book study is not going to be going forward. So once we're clear of that and uh, everything gets figured out there, then we'll, uh, we'll be back in full action, I guess is how I would say it. So I uh, appreciate your prayer for that. So yeah, uh, wild Sunday morning, huh? If you're uh, new here, welcome. <laughs> Typically, it's not how the uh, announcements go. But uh, anyway, God is good, huh? Yeah, the Lord is good. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're continuing. This is the section we're going to jump into this week is where uh, Paul is, he's going to talk a little bit more, a little bit more about his ministry, but he's going to really share his heart. And it's just, it's a, it's a fantastic portion of the letter. And, and at different times we've mentioned that and talked about how Paul um, kind of reveals himself a little bit, you know, personally. We have the, the points where Paul, for example, uh, he shares, he says, when I, when I handed this letter, when I handed my letter, my first letter off uh, to be taken to you, he says, I, I wept because I knew it would hurt you. I knew it would be hard for you. I knew it would be tough to deal with. And in other places, he talks about his longing for them and, and, and what it feels like to be rejected and these different things. So uh, it's one of the things I, I really enjoy about the, the first and second Corinthians letters is you see this this personality, this person, a human, not just an apostle who like flies around on a, with a cape or something, but an actual human being filled with the Holy Spirit, led of God, and, and the travails he goes through, right? Now, he's just getting finished with a huge section here where he's, he says, remember he started it in chapter, uh, towards the end of 10 and 11, where he says, let me speak as a fool. So what's happening is uh, the, you have, he calls them false apostles, super apostles, uh, false teachers, Remember, you have these uh, people that are in Corinth. They're making a lot of accusations against Paul. And Paul is defending himself. And that's why he goes on to boast. Now, his boasting, if you remember, very different from a lot of boasting today from, from uh, some people. Uh, well, maybe from all of us. But his boasts weren't about, look how great of an apostle I am because I have a Rolls Royce and a personal jet and I have a giant church and all these things. No, his boasts are, hey, you want to know how I'm legit? Let me speak like a fool for a second. I'm legit because I've been beaten so many times I can't count. 
He says, the, the Jews have beaten me. The Romans have beaten me. He says, I got, I got lowered out of a, a, a window over a wall to get away. And he's making the point. He says, all these things happened in my life. The alienation, the loneliness, the sleepless nights, the hungry days. All the things that he lists off. He, he's listing that because he's trying to show them, not I'm a great guy or I'm super strong, right? Because Paul would, uh, would say in other places, he says, it's, it's, it's weakness that I boast in, and when I'm weak, it's, it's God's strength that works through me, right? So he's not lifting himself up. He's trying to lift the message up. He's saying, you can trust me with the message that I gave you of the gospel because this is what I'm willing to go through to give you that message. Does that make sense? So it's not just that Paul's trying to rally everybody to himself and say, I'm a great guy. You should really love me. He's trying to rally them and say, no, you need to accept me because I am an apostle. Here's my proof of that. And, and to ignore these other bad teachers, right? Whether it's Gnostics or mystics or Judaizers, the different things that they're bringing in for that, right? So in the, the, the section that we're going to cover today, it starts in uh, verse 11. And this comes after Paul's kind of crescendo, if you will. I don't know if he would label it that way, where he speaks of a quote-unquote man he knew in Christ that was caught up into heaven, Right? And it's the same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians that's translated into English as rapture. But he was caught up into heaven and he saw things and heard things that were unlawful for him to share uh, with us in, in his letters and, and other people. And he says, he makes the kind of the ironic statement. He says, I won't boast in myself, but I'll boast in a man like that. Even in its, its ironic speech, because he is that person, Right. Then he goes on to say, because of all the things that God has done in me and through me, he has allowed Satan, and this wording is important, I think, he's allowed Satan to buffet me. So he doesn't say God did it, right? James tells us that, that uh, God tempts nobody, right? So he makes, it's important his wording because he says, God allowed Satan to buffet me. And he, said, he says, Satan gave me a thorn in my flesh, and again, we don't know what it is. Right? There's myriads of hypotheses, and some are good and some are funky, but we don't know what it is. We just know that, that something physical happened to him. It was a thorn in his flesh, and that God allowed it. And, and Paul had the boldness three times, right? Three times he says, please take this away from me. And whether it was he asked three times and then God answered, or three times he asked and every time he got answered, at some point God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Right? And so Paul says, because of that, I will glory, I will, remember that word doxa, good opinion, I will spread good opinion about my weaknesses and my suffering. And he says, because when I'm weak, I'm strong. So that's kind of Paul's, uh, uh, he's kind of winding down from that. He's going to finish off in the section we're in with one more part, and then he's going to share his heart uh, for us. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. I have made myself a fool, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I, never, uh, that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me for this wrong. So there we get a, see a little bit of his ironic speaking or even sarcasm here. But he, he makes the point. He says, he says, I made a fool of myself. So his commentary is on all the stuff that I just told you that went on in my life. All the difficulties, everything that I've suffered, everything that God has showed me. He says, I, was, I acted like a fool. 
He goes, but you drove me to it. And is, is he saying, you know, is he trying to assault them? No, because we've already read over and over again that he loves them, right? That he cares about them. But he's making a point to them. I should have never had to break down my spiritual resume for you to trust me. Because you knew me, right? He's, he's been there three times already. He's, he went there once to start the church. So he was there in first, or, no, it's not first Corinthians. He was in Corinth. He was there in Corinth, right? And he was there for 18 months when he started the church. He leaves and he comes back for another visit. And then he comes back for a second visit and he's about to make a third visit. And we know the second visit was really hard because remember earlier in 2 Corinthians, he says, I didn't come visit you again because my last visit was so painful, right? He does just love like the detail and the nitty gritty you can kind of get out of these books where, I mean, Paul says, he makes the point like, I wanted to come visit you again, but it would have been too hard for all of us. It wouldn't have been good. So I didn't come visit you. And so he, he makes the point to that. And, and Jesus said something similar to the apostles. Remember, in, is it 14, John 14 or 16? I, I looked it up in a bit. But he says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't handle them right now. And so I'm going to leave. And when I leave, I'm going to send the comforter to you, the Holy Spirit. It's just an important point. I think that a lot of times we can get jazzed up about truth, which is good. Like, truth is good. But there's a time to share truth and love. And there's a time to refrain and see how God would move in our hearts. So it feels like we're in good company if there's a time where we go, I know this is wrong, but I want to wait for an opportune time to talk about it. Jesus said that, and so did Paul. So we want to be sensitive about when we're uh, sharing truth in love and not just barging in uh, and, and say, this is the way it is, and if you don't like it, you know, you can pound sand or whatever. So Paul is very sensitive in that way. And he says, I had to boast. You should accept me. You drove me to it. He goes from there, and he says, I ought to have been commended by you. Now, these, the hard, I think the hard part about reading these statements and, and what we're about to read is a lot of people misuse statements like this, don't they? A lot of people, I ought to have been commended by you. How many people in our life at times have said, you have to trust me or you should appreciate me, but they don't do it from a good place. They do it from a broken place because they actually need from us something that we're not maybe prepared to give or they're trying to find some sort of affirmation for a wrong reason, or they're just flat out trying to manipulate us. So sometimes when we read stuff like this, we go, oh, it kind of makes us feel uncomfortable. But it's important, we're looking at his actions, right? We're looking at Paul's actions. And so when, by, by Paul's actions, when he comes to them and he says something, this is bold. I mean, let's be honest. If someone walked up to you and said, you know what, you made me boast like a fool, and it's your fault. And not only is it your fault, you should have accepted me. That would be very offensive, wouldn't it? That'd be hard. You'd be like, oh, really? Cool story, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we would probably not be open to that. But maybe if a family member, if someone who has loved us and cared for us or a close friend, they come up and say, hey, you know what? All this stuff I had to tell, show you of how much I've cared for you, maybe we can accept that, right? So that's where Paul's coming from. He's coming as a, a loving father. In fact, he's going to compare himself uh, to that here in a moment. So he says, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles. This is the second time he's used this term. And he says, look, I'm not inferior to them. Our ministry is not inferior to them. They are not superior people or superior ministries to what we're doing. But he, he says, even though I am nothing. So again, even in this whole thing, Paul is saying, look, we are not inferior to these false teachers, but we are nothing. Remember in the beginning of chapter 12, he says, I could keep going about revelations and other things that God has done in my life. He says, but if I did that, you would probably think too much of me. 
You would think more of me than what you should, is what he says to them. So you can see in his heart, he's not trying to, like, everybody should be impressed with me. I'm the best. I'm like the, I'm the, the apostle of apostles. I have, you know, my championship apostle belt, and I go to my championship apostle jet, and I go, no, he's just saying, look, I'm just a person that God sent to you, and I love you, and my message is more legitimate than these false teachers. So we can see, it's a, if you will, it's a controlled environment. It's an environment where Paul is merely trying to draw them to his message through himself. Does that make sense? So as he goes on, he says, look, I, I'm nothing. But verse 12, he says, and, he, and this is where he's going to um, reiterate part of his ministry. He says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. He had the truth, he had the love, right? The compassion, the care, the drive, the, the, the spirit. And he goes on from there and he says, including. So not just these other internal qualities that came out through the fruit of the spirit. Excuse me, he goes on from there and he says, including signs and wonders and miracles. So part of Paul's ministry was the fact that he was doing miracles. And some of them were weird, right? Where, for example, they would pass around his sweatbands which I don't know how they had sweatbands. I don't know. I've never seen a picture of one. But evidently there were things, whether they were hankies that he wiped his sweat with or he actually looked like, you know, LeBron James or whatever it was. They would take what he sweated upon and the, the report among the other apostles and Luke, when he writes Acts, is when people touch them, they'd be healed. So we don't know why that is. Please don't start handing out sweatbands, right? But it was a point of faith for people. And that's the really important part of stuff like that. It was, it was a point where people said, I know that Christ has power in Paul, and I want to access that power. So however it happened, whether it was Peter's shadow, whether it was Paul's sweatbands, there were a, a ton of miracles. Paul, when he turns around to the, the girl who's uh, demonized, um, just as a side note for you, I don't, I don't want to like open a can of worms here and just like throw it. The actual Greek word, the Greek possession, demon possession, is never in the New Testament. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying that the Greek word is demonized. And so Wycliffe, when they begin to translate it, that's when they use demon possession for our English word. So do that what you will. I'm glad to hand that out. But the point is, there's this girl, and she's labeled as demonized, and she's able to project uh, the future. She's able to, to tell the future, right? She starts Paul, following Paul around, and eventually it says Paul got annoyed. And then he turns around and he casts the demon away from her, out of her, however you want to look at it. I don't, it, it just seems bad all around, so I'm not sure we need to know all the ins and outs of it. But he says, get out of here, whole, you know, evil spirit or unclean spirit, and that spirit leaves. So that to be said, Paul had this ministry of miracles, right? So he's pointing out to Corinth, he says, look, when I was there, God was doing these things through me too. So God, is, he's, he's, again, just legitimizing the supernatural nature of his ministry. The, the, the word he was sharing was supernatural. It was supernaturally obtained, right? He said, I was taught in the desert for years by Jesus, right? So it was, all, he, he's showing like, this is um, my ministry to you, and, and it's a reminder. And then he asked the question. So this is evidently one of the accusations that Paul responds to. And we've talked about that a bit in the past, how he kind of brings these subjects up. And, and even at one point he says, as you wrote to me, right? So for example, in 1 Corinthians, when he's about to talk about 
uh, sex and marriage and, and fornication sex outside of marriage. He says, in answer to what you, you wrote to me or you asked me. So a lot of these things, because they seem not really in a context for us, they're most likely things that he's answering back. So in verse 13, he says this, How were you inferior to the other churches? So most likely one of the claims of these false teachers were Paul and his guys treat you subpar compared to other churches. Does that make sense? Because he says, How were you inferior to the other churches? Except that I was never a burden to you. Forgive me for this wrong. So here you see his kind of ironic speech, his sarcasm. He says, he says, how were you inferior to all the other churches? They're making this accusation that I treated you inferior. And he goes, yep, you're right. I didn't charge you anything when I was there. Please forgive me for not taking money for you. That's literally what he's saying. So he's just making the point, how is it that these people can say that I treated you is inferior compared to the other churches I've been to? Now we know because he already covered this at one point. Remember he says, I robbed the churches of Macedonia to be able to share the gospel with you. Again, ironic speech, right? Because Macedonia, being the north of Greece, all those churches were profoundly impoverished. And Achaia, which is the southern end of Greece, where Corinth is, the churches there were uh, very, very wealthy in general. So he's, he's again saying, uh, making the notion, uh, or the implication, I should say, that, look, how did we wrong you? We literally didn't take money from you. None of us ever did. So please forgive us for that, right? So he's, he's making a point. Now in verse 14, he said, I'm, I'm going to read this whole section and we'll go back. He says in verse 14, Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? We'll stop there. So Paul is now, uh, he's continuing in part on the money train or their accusations about money and about his motives. But he says, and these are some of, uh, some of my favorite verses, again, because you see Paul's heart. Again, these are maybe hard sayings for us because people use the things like this that Paul is saying to abuse and get things, right? To lie and to manipulate. So it might be kind of hard for us, but remember, we have this whole background. I want to keep emphasizing that because people that love us and they have a huge background into our lives of loving us, when they say hard things to us, we need to be open to it. I'm not saying we just take everything, no matter what, carte blanche and say, oh, okay. I mean, sometimes people that love us and know us say weird stuff, right? Sometimes they do. I've had uh, people come up to me before and been like, God's will is for you to adopt. And I'm like, man, I'm not feeling that. We have two kids, we're good, you know? People that have God's will for them to, to adopt, God bless them in that. You know, I've had people come up to me and say, uh, the Lord told me that you and your wife have some sort of huge problem. And I'm like, I am unaware of this problem, but I will ask her if there's a huge problem. And I went to her and was like, is there a huge problem? She said, I don't think so. I said, cool. So people will say weird stuff to us, right? Because they're, they're in the moment, they're in church, they're feeling it, whatever it might be. 
And they want to be faithful to what they've heard, right? So I'm not minimizing a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. But, but in general, people that care about us typically don't say weird stuff, right? So when they do weird stuff, we can go, oh, that was weird. I'm probably not going to walk in that. But when they come and they share something with us and we go, I can pray through that. I can, I'm going to think about that. We should be opening to accepting that, right? Because they, the, the, the probably the biggest motive is, is that they love us. And even if they say something true to us in an offensive, in a weird way, because maybe they're not used to ex, you know, expressing something they feel like the Lord has given them to, to share with you, we can humble ourselves. It's okay, right? If somebody has to approach us in the perfect way, with the perfect tone and the perfect words and the perfect stature, and everything has to be perfect for us to, to hear it from them, they're not the ones in the wrong, right? It's us. And so I, I want to iterate, as Paul reiterate, as Paul is sharing these words that a person could accuse him of trying to manipulate, we know he's not. I mean, our doctrine would be that he's, you know, obviously this is inspired by the Spirit, and so we know, but for bringing it down for where we're at, they could take it, not just because, remember, this is, at their time, it's a letter. <laughs> Literally a letter that Paul sends to be read aloud at their church. That's what this is. And so we can, we can look at his history, we can look at what he's saying, and we can go, okay, he's, he's not manipulating them. Paul died in a rental home, right? He was renting a home, and he was, he was under house arrest by Nero when Nero sends guards to take him out, and he beheads him. He didn't die with a mansion. He didn't die with clout in this world. He lived in a rented house, until he was pulled out of it and beheaded. So we can know, even to the end, he was a genuine individual. And so what he says to them, he says, I'm ready to visit you a third time. Remember, he started the church, visit, visit, now a third visit. And he says, and I will be, I will not be, excuse me, I will not be a burden to you because, that, what, I, excuse me, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. So he reiterates the point again. And he says, I'm coming a third time. And he goes, and I'm, I'm not going to take anything from you. We will not take money from you. Now, was he making money? Yeah, from the churches in Macedonia. So he's not making a case for not having a living working at a church. He's making a case specifically to them saying, I, because of what's happening between you and I, and for the sake of the validity of the message, I am not going to take a dime from you. Remember previously he said, basically, I'd rather die than take money from you. I will never do it. So he's reiterating, I'm coming. I'm not going to take money from you. And this is why he says, because I'm not interested in what you have. I'm interested in you. And I want to camp on this for a second. Because he's going to, he's going to reiterate the same point in a different way, the next verse. This is really important for church relationships. Super important. And family relationships and really all relationships. But I say church relationships because we're involved in God's kingdom. Right? I mean, that's the goal anyway. <laughs> right? The goal is that we're trying to be involved in a kingdom that has no, does not have an earthly origin. Right? It has a heavenly origin. And it's got heavenly ideals and, and heavenly spiritual laws and these different things. Right? That's what we're involved in. 
And so a lot of times, because just because we're broken, I'm not going to even want to assign maliciousness, although sometimes we can have maliciousness in our hearts. Malicious means mean we're doing things for evil or selfish reasons, right? So sometimes we can say the same sentence, and one time it's malicious, and one time it's not. Does that make sense? It speaks of the motive of our heart. And so because we're interacting with each other and we're sinful and we're trying to walk with God and we have our own stuff that we're going through and all the different crazy things that goes on in our minds and in our days, right? Yet we're full of the Holy Spirit and we're, we're wanting to move in a direction towards building his kingdom. Because of all this stuff, this fundamental motivation needs to be in our heart. We need to um, farm this, if you will. We need to look at one another and say, I'm not looking any, for anything from you. I'm just looking for you. I just want to bless you. You know, when Paul, he writes to the Corinthians, in this case, it's money. I don't, I don't want your possessions. And they had a lot of possessions, right? This is one of the richest cities in the Roman Empire. Literally one of the richest cities in the entire Roman Empire. People that live in Corinth, for the most part, obviously there was poverty in Corinth like there is in any major city. But this is money hand over fist there. It's, the, it's one of the core centers of trade in the entire Roman Empire. And so he's, he's going there. He's, I don't want any of that stuff. And so we can, we can look to people. And again, we're not, I don't, not, not even talking about malicious motives here. But we can look to people and, and dialogue with them and, and maybe interact with them because we want something from them. And that's a, that's a wrong motivation. We want to interact with people, not because we're trying to get something from them, and, but because we, we just love them. And we want to be a blessing to them. And here's the thing, as Christians, when we're interacting with someone, as soon as we realize that we're interacting with them because we want something from them, we need to repent. I'm not saying you have to voice that. That may not be wise. If you're in the middle of a conversation, you stop and say, actually, I'm only talking to you because I want something from you. Probably not going to be super building for the church, right? But what we can do in the moment is repent and say, you know what? I'm talking to this person for wrong motives, whatever they might be. And you know what? This person is precious in the sight of our Lord Jesus. And they have an incredible value to them. And that includes wanting to change their behavior, wanting them to believe, you know, pre, post, mid, rapture or whatever. Spiritual gifts alive or dead, free will or not. When we find ourselves trying to get something from people, we have to be careful with that. If we're trying to argue for free will versus predestination, hopefully we're talking because we love people. If we're trying to argue for predestination over free will, hopefully we're doing that because we love people. If we're trying to argue whatever, Hopefully it's because I'm not trying to get something from them. Validation because they'll believe what I believe. Money, something like that. But just to say, I care about you. So I love Paul's statement here. It's, a, it's something I think for myself anyway, and, and maybe you can join in with that to strive for. To say that I want to look at every single human being, and I'm not trying to get something from them. I'm trying to give something to them. I'm trying to give them love. I'm trying to give them assurance, comfort, care, conviction because of love, whatever it might be. So it's, just, it's, such a, it's such a great heart, I think, that we see here from Paul. And then he's going to go on, and here's his practical application for that. Verse 15. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. We talk about this. What does he have? Nearly nothing. 
Right? At the end of his life, he writes and he says, hey, could you bring me a jacket because I'm cold? He says, hey, could you bring me the scrolls? There's some scrolls I'd really like. So he's, he's not like at the end of his life saying, hey, make sure you bring the rolls around. Right? Make, sure you, make sure you bring you know, my, my super nice Gucci stuff. He's just like, hey, I, I need the scrolls. I need God's word. Some of the, the, the other letters that some of these other guys have written. I'd like to read what James says. I'd like to read what Peter says. I'd like to read what John says. Can you please bring me the scrolls? So he makes the point. He says, I will spend everything I have for you. That's kind of a, it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of general, right? And it can be kind of um, out there. It's the kind of thing you read and you go, I don't really know how to work through that because I really don't want to do that. And so I'm going to keep reading. You ever felt that way before? It's also, I think, important that we realize that we don't have the same context as Paul, right? There may be a few of us in this room that are called to go to churches and to to teach the word to them. There may be a few of us in this room that are called to, uh, you know, we're all called to be heralds of truth uh, in our spheres of influence for sure, right? So, but most of us probably aren't going to grab a donkey and start cruising around all over the Mediterranean and telling people about God. You could. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. Maybe that's what you're called to. But most of us are probably not, right? Most of us are probably called to have a living so that we can eat and we can bless people around us and take care of our families and then also be involved in a local body of believers, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, remember, in Hebrews 10. Most of us are probably called to some sort of ministry inside of that. We have some sort of spiritual giftings uh, you know, Tam's spiritual gifting is she makes cookies and tea, and then you pour your heart out to her, and, and she's a really good listener, right? And so we're all going to have different spiritual giftings that we're going to walk in. And, and some of those spiritual gifting can come, you know, be in uh, uh, physical forms, too, in the sense of, like, you know, you want to help out someone, and so you find out your neighbor's, you know, septic died, so you're willing to go dig a ditch or something. Or you find out that this happened or that happened, and you, and you go, you help, right? So in the context here, most of us aren't going to share Paul's context. Does that make sense? We're not going to grab Timmy and the boys and start, you know, traveling around. But in this case, or in our case, how do we apply that? Do we even want to apply that? Do we want to be a place in our life where we say, I'm willing to give up everything, everything that I have and everything that I am? Because it's a very scary thing. Jesus even said, he put it this way. He said, look, if you want to find your life, right? if you want to experience life, he said, you have to lose your life for my sake. Now, life, you know, the word there, it's, it's, kind of, it's a metaphor, but not. right? He is talking about life. But you know, before any of us were ever uh, believers, if you're a believer in Jesus here today, we all had life. right? We're all breathing in and out. Our hearts were all beating. But when Jesus makes a statement like, hey, if you want to have life, that's not really where our mind goes to, right? If you go to the hospital and you see someone who's intubated and they're in a coma and they're breathing in and out, you go, you don't go, well, that's, that's great life. When we think of life, what do we think of? We think of like expanse or we think of freedom. We think of no burdens. We think of joy. We think of peace, right? If you look at the marketplace, uh, you know, and this is one of my favorites, if if, if you're going to get life, what life is from the world, it's a picture of your tanned legs with a corona in your hand on a beach, right? That's how they advertise life to us. 
or it's a picture if they're going to sell Apple products, it's having funky hair and different colored clothes and dancing around in an urban area with your iPods in, right? That's how they communicate life to us. They say, if you have these items, if you do these things, then you're going to experience this freedom. The irony of that is that for most of us, we've done some of those things and experienced them, and would we look back and go, that was the life? No, we would not. We would look back and go, I was so empty, and I was looking all around me to be full. And in some moments I found it, but in most I did not. And so when, 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 when Jesus tells us, if you want to experience vitality and freedom and peace, and joy, it can never be found in your own life. In other words, it cannot be found in your nature, in your fallen Adamic nature, the nature we received from Adam. There's no life there. He says, so if you want to truly experience life, he says, you have to give up and get rid of, and he used the word crucify, right? That you have to take up your cross daily and follow him. Now, in that quote, and it goes on, there's more stuff about it, but in that quote, remember, this is the same Jesus that said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly will flow rivers of living water, his innermost being. So there's another, I think, illustration of life. The same Jesus says, if you want to experience life, he says, this is what it is. If you're thirsty, you come to me. And he goes, it'll be like an explosion of water out of your gut. You're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Interesting picture. But we get it, right? Not only am I not thirsty anymore, life and vitality is flowing out of me. So the same Jesus that acknowledged that we would thirst, the same Jesus that said, hey, anyone who is weary or heavy laden, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Right, so again, with Jesus, we see his motivation is not personal in the sense of he's trying to get from us, is it? When Jesus says you have to give up your life to find life, it's not because he's trying to get something from you, is it? It's not because he's trying to bring you into bondage or some new law to make you, to make you, you know, work harder or something like that. No, over and over again, these calls of Jesus, even the difficult ones are what? If you really want life, you have to say no to yourself in some capacity. If you refuse to do that, you can be a saved individual, and I'll be glad to defend that, and, you know, but you're going to experience radical amounts of death in your life. By death, separation. You can still be a believer and be crazy thirsty. In fact, I think the thirst gets worse when you're a believer, and you, and, and you begin to not walk with God. In Hebrews, we, it's, it's, it's we drift, and then we neglect, and that's what happens to us. So we have these examples over and over again of these ideas that true life is not found. Vitality, joy, expanse, lightness is never found in holding on to mine. It's found in letting go of mine and letting Christ work in my heart. It's interesting because we would all say, I think we would as believers, we want to be involved in Christ's kingdom. Right? You know what's different about Christ's kingdom today? If I go out and violate the laws of the kingdom of the United States of America, what will happen? I'll get a ticket, or I'll get arrested, you know, go to prison, whatever it might be. But it's interesting about God's kingdom, because right now, we can go out and violate the laws of God's kingdom, and what happens? 
sometimes nothing in the beginning. Nothing in the sense of we don't see immediate retribution, right? But when we, go, when we deny the tenets and the ideas of God's kingdom, what he says is good, what he says is bad, what he says gives life, and what he says destroys, when we ignore those things, he doesn't come down on us, right? Could you imagine if every time we sinned, like heaven's angels popped down and had a little chat? We would never get anything done. Right? How many of us this very morning, would, you know, people would have saw the angels descend on our house? But they don't. We live in a day of grace. It doesn't mean that nothing is at stake. It doesn't mean that sin is okay. It doesn't mean that sin has, has no fallout. It just means that God is inviting you to lay down everything that you have at his feet. And he promises that if we do that, that we'll find and enjoy everything he has. And it's a really hard thing to do. Because for many of us, including myself, we think that this life and this world still has something to offer. That there's something that I could do or I could acquire or I could experience that would somehow actually give me the life I've always wanted. And the reality is, the older we get, the more years that pass, it's bizarre because we realize that's a complete lie. But when we refuse Jesus, we just persist in it. Isn't that weird? Isn't that how crazy we are? That we can actually know from experiential truth, not to mention the Bible, but for experiential truth, that the Bible's right. And yet we can still continue to insist on our own things because we think, this time it'll be better. This time I'll feel complete. This time it'll be what I always wanted. And yet Jesus is just saying it never will be. There will never come a time in which we engage in the flesh, in sin, and we come away better for it. It'll never happen. And it never has happened. And so when Paul here, he shares this attitude. He says, look, I'll be spent. And who are they? These are people that he's, he's, <laughs> he has to, he's going there a third time. He has to write letters. He even says, he says, the more I love you, the less you love me. And then he says, hey, you know what? Be that as, may, as it may, I'm still going to love you. So how do we get there? How do we change? You know, there's a great little section here in 1 John, if you wouldn't mind flip, flipping over there. I'd like to make a side note, because I think it's, this is really revolutionary for me. 1 John can be a little bit of a confusing letter. And it's, it's confusing because a lot of times, people that mean well, and people that are lovers of Jesus, they read it and they interpret it as signs of life. And this is, this is what I mean by that. They read it, and so there's, if you read 1 John and 2nd and 3rd, there's a lot of if-then statements, if you're familiar with the letter. If this, then this. If then, then this. And, and the, the interesting thing about it, there, and there's some, there's some kind of like, uh, like in 1 John 3, there's some pretty profound statements where he says, for example, uh, anyone who, if you sin, you are of the devil. That's kind of wild. So the problem is, if you take... 1 John and the ifs and thens as signs of life, meaning signs of salvation, then you have to conclude that if you're sinning, you're of the devil. 
So translators, meaning well, put things in like anyone who practices sin is of the devil. The problem is that the word practice is not in the original. It's not in, it's not in any of the manuscripts that we have of 1 John. Not one, not ever. And so the, this doctrine has kind of come forward that if you practice sin, then you're of the devil and, and you lose your salvation. One, well, there's a couple of big problems with that. Number one, Paul makes the autobiographical statement in, in Romans 7. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. But the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I practice. And interestingly enough, the Greek verb prazo is in that statement. So Paul literally says, I practice sin. So when we try to take the view that anyone who practices sin loses their salvation, you have to, a lot to grapple with because that's not in the Bible, for one. And number two, Romans 7, Paul clearly says, I practice sin even though I don't want to in my flesh. I bring that up not to just make some snide point, but that what, what, what 1 John is all about is not is a person saved or not. It's about the origin of sin. Anytime a person sins, it's from their old nature from this world or from Satan. That's the only origin of sin. The only, and and it goes on to say, if you, if you see someone practicing righteousness, that they're, they're righteous, the point is that any time you see righteousness in a person's life, the origin is always Jesus. So it's not testing life, it's testing fellowship. The other side of that is John uses important language. When he's talking about salvation, he uses the phrase born of God. right? And we, and we can get down with that, right? Because... For example, in John, when, when John quotes Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, he says to him, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born anew. Right? You have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. So when John is talking about someone being saved, he uses the phrase born of God. When he's talking about fellowship or, no, or, or relationship, he uses the term knowing God. Right? And, and that's important. I know in our vernacular, if we were to you know, have a Friday night fellowship and I walked up to someone, walked up to one of you and said, oh, do you know the Lord? What am I asking you? I'm asking you if you're saved, right? Because that's our modern vernacular. That is not biblical vernacular. I mean, if you're going to use it correctly. Again, I'm not trying to be snide or a jerk and I'm not trying to say never ask someone if they know the Lord. I'm just saying that when you're, for biblical interpretation purposes, it's important to understand that knowing God is not salvation, being born of God is salvation, and knowing God is relationship. So 1 John and the other following letters, they're not about if you're saved or not. They're about the origin of sin, the origin of righteousness, and attaining fellowship with God. In fact, 1 John 1, he says, I'm writing to you so that you can have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father. Right? He doesn't say, I'm writing to you to see if you're saved or not. So this is important ideas. And so the other part of it is that you come up with weird conclusions. If you try to look at 1 John as a sign of life, then you have to come to the conclusion that anyone who claims to be a believer who has ever hated anyone is unsaved and is a liar. Has anyone? Don't raise your hand. Has anyone here, you're pretty sure you're saved because you put your trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, you're probably 100% sure you're saved, but you've hated someone? Probably. Right? Probably. So if you're going to look at 1 John as signs of life, evidently you're not saved because you've hated someone. So again, 
trust me, I'm not trying to be snide. I'm trying to be helpful. Because when you can read 1 John, and you can realize that these are just, he's just talking about how to have more fellowship and be closer to God, versus make you paranoid about whether you're saved or not, it's an incredibly encouraging book. Or letter, I should say. But if you try to read 1 John and, and try to establish, am I saved? Are they saved? Ooh, they said something naughty. I, mm, I'm not sure. It's a miserable book. So in this case, we're going to look at love. So he says here, in verse 7, and we're going to go through this pretty quick. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Okay, we're into this, right? So if you are, and every time the word love appears here, it's the Greek word agape. So it's not phileo, it's not eros, it's not any of the storge, it's not any of the other Greek words. It's agape love. So it's the idea, it's the moral love of God. So he tells us, if you know someone, or if you personally have the capacity to look at another person, right, agape love, that you look at another person, regardless of what they've done or who they are or anything like that, not not endorsing everything they've done, but you're able to look at them no matter what they've done and to say, I want the best for you. That's the moral love of God. Because that's how Jesus looks at us. It's how God looks at us. It's not just that he feels fuzzy when he looks at you. It's that he looks at you regardless of everything you've done, said, or thought. And he says, I want the best for you. So John is just making the statement. If you love people, if you have that in your heart for people, you can know that that is from God. Every person who loves another person, they love them in, in, in a godly, agape love, it's because that's from God. So we're into that, right? You have to be born of God to truly love someone with God's love, right? We can, I mean, that seems theologically sound, right? He goes from there and he says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So now it's a different statement. So he says, if he, first time he says, if you do love someone or you observe love, you can know that that's happening because that person has been born of God. He, but then he doesn't say the reverse. He says, but if you don't love people, then you can know you don't know God. Gnosko, uh, that you don't have an intimate relationship and experiential knowledge with God. So he doesn't say you haven't been born of God. He says you don't know him. This is really great, right? Because when I find a lack of love in my life, if I look at my church or I look at my family or I look at people around me, and I'm just like, you know what, to hell with you guys. I don't care what happens to you. He's not saying you're not saved. He's saying that's awesome because now you've observed a symptom, which is a lack of love, and you actually know the problem. Because the problem isn't that you don't love people. The problem is that you don't know God. The problem isn't even that you're not saved. The problem is that you don't know God if you're a believer and you don't love people. So that's very remediable, isn't it? We can fix that. We can fix not knowing God, right? Because we can take steps in our lives. He doesn't say you have to be perfect to love people. He doesn't say you have to be perfect to experience these things. He says you have to know God. And that's, that's fixable. It's fixable right here this morning, right? Here you are, you crazy people. You showed up to, to seek God, right? You showed up to be with each other. You showed up to, to worship him. You showed up to remember him. You showed up because you know you need him in your life. You're already remedying the problem if you realize that you don't love people. You're getting to know God. That's why we have things like if you have a devotional life. You don't have to have a devotional life. You can go your whole life without a devotional life. It's going to be very dry and it's going to suck. But you can do it, right? 
but you're not going to love people because you're not going to know God. See, as we get to know God, we get to understand who he is and what he did for us. And that enables love in us. And that's what he's going to go on to say. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent this one and, excuse me, his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So he goes on to say, he goes, we have a definitive view of what love is. And he could have said, we know that God loves us because he gave spiritual giftings. We know that God loves us because he said we don't have to worry about anything in this life provision-wise. We know God loves us because he always gives us warm fuzzies when we sing worship songs. You know, he could have, a million things he could have said, but he said, do you want to know how we know that God loves us? God loves us? Because he sent Jesus. That's how we know. Right? That's, that's why we can, we can it's actually going to get pretty impressive here in a moment if it's not already. He says, we know what love looks like because he sent his son Jesus as the atonement for our sin. That he sent Jesus as the full payment for our sin. That he judged his own son. Isaiah 53 in the prophecy says this, that it pleased him, that is the Father, to bruise Jesus. It pleased him to crush him so that he might make many righteous. Think about that. In Christ coming to the earth and all that he endured, when he was crucified and bled for our sins, he was judged by the Father. He was judged for our sin. He took on suffering through no fault of his own. We didn't deserve it. He didn't know it. He suffered. And so the, the scripture tells us, do you want to know how God loves you? He crushed his son for you because he wants you to be with him. He wants your sin to be forgiven through Jesus. He wants to have a relationship with you through his Holy Spirit. He says, that's how we know. And when we see that kind of love, it's incredible because when you, when we, when I, I can't speak for you, when I stop for a moment and I realize the enormity and, and inescapability of my sin, it becomes a lot easier to look at someone else and understand why they're crazy. Because I'm crazy. Right? When I can look at someone else's life and go, why are you saying the things that are, you're saying? Oh, because you're like me. Why are you acting out the way you're acting out? Oh, because you're like me. And you just haven't allowed Jesus to heal that part of your heart yet. So I can, I can look and you can look at anybody and go, I know why you're crazy. Because you're a sinner like me. But I can love you because Jesus died for you too. That, there, that there's never been another person on the earth that was better than another person. It's never happened other than Jesus. And so all of a sudden, when I realize what I've forgiven, when I realize how kind Jesus has been to me, someone else is acting out, and, and I'm not trying to use modern words to dismiss sin. It's sin, it's wickedness, it's lawlessness, all right, well, the whole gamut. I'm just using acting out because I think we can identify with that. 
because we observe in ourselves and in others that they do things, and you're like, wow, woo, right? Because they're like us. That's why they do it. And they just haven't dealt with that part of their life, whether they've refused to or they don't know how to or whatever it might be. And so all of a sudden, we're called to love people, to look upon them the way Jesus looks upon us. That's what we're called to do. And that's what's being said here. He's going to go on from there. He's going to say, this is how we know that we live in him and that he is in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son uh, to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them. And they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. And we're out of time. I'd love to go through that, but we don't have time. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is, this is going to sound scandalous, all right? And, and we can talk afterwards. In John 5, John quotes Jesus as saying, if anyone receives my words and believes in me, he will not be judged. He will not be judged. Now we go, wait a minute, wait a minute. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, come on, James, come on. There's judgment. Not this, not the judgment you're thinking about. See, when we read, and it translates for us, the, 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 the judgment seat of Christ, it may not mean much to us because we live here today in this time in English, but it's the Bema seat or Bema of Christ. Now, any Greek or Roman who read that in that letter to Paul, because remember, the Second Corinthians is just a letter that's being written to them. The Bema is where the Olympians stood. That's what the Bema is. It is the only reference for Bema in ancient Greek, in Koine Greek. It's where Olympians stood and they would get their wreath of, of uh, olive branches and whatnot. It's where the rewards were. So if you're a, a first century Corinthian and this is being read by some elder at your, uh, uh, at your church or somehow you managed to get your, your, your paws on you know, a, a letter to the Corinthians, you wouldn't interpret it as, oh, the judgment seat of Christ, like bad things. It wouldn't even be in your mind. Because that's not what it was. It wasn't a throne. It was not. It was a bema. It was where Olympian, victorious Olympians stood. So the Christian does not enter into judgment. Paul put it this way in Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He defines in Christ in Romans 6. People who have received Jesus. So the good news is that any believer in Jesus, is, there's no condemnation. There's no judgment to you. Because Jesus paid it all. He took all the judgment. There's not like a wee little bit waiting for nutty Christians. That's, that's not a thing. He's literally judged his son and crushed him for us. And so our judgment, or we will stand before Christ, there'll be a bit of a reckoning for sure, but it's going to be this. Were you faithful with what I gave you? And if you are, here's the reward for that. And what you cultivated in your life that was sinful, I'm, taking, I'm burning that away, it says in 1 Corinthians 3. So it's not a judgment in, in the terms of condemnation. It's, it's purification and reward. That's what the Bema Seat judgment is. 
So it's important that perfect love casts out fear. That's why. That God perfectly loves you. And then when you are willing to receive that, it's no longer a relationship of fear anymore. It's not, oh no, I'm going to be punished anymore. Like waiting for a drunk dad to come home and you spilt beans on the floor or something. It's not that at all. And so he says, we don't have to be ashamed that it's coming. All sorts of these promises. And then he goes on in verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. When we experience God's love, when we finally, and just, just roll with me, when we finally let ourselves experience God's love, whether that's throwing down our weird reverse pride where we're like, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Or we finally repent of sin or whatever it might be and just go, you know what? You love me. God loves me. He really cares about me deeply. He really sent his son Jesus to absorb all the righteous judgment that I deserve. And Jesus really did pay it all. The the songwriter was actually right. That Jesus paid it all. It's all paid up. When we finally accept what happened at the cross and then we accept it for others, it's incredible. We love because he loved us. And when we accept the love of God, it's incredible how it begins to pour out of our hearts for others. But as long as we hold on to real or false pride, as long as we hold on to, I'm going to do it myself, as long as we hold on to, I deserve this or I'm better than that, we can't love people. As long as we say, oh, God can't love me, I'm, I'm too cruddy, I'm too far gone, I'm too broken, we can't love people. We just come to be simply trust in Christ that what he said is true, that he has great things for us, and then God does a supernatural work in our heart, and all of a sudden we can look around at other people, go, oh, I guess you're not so bad. <laughs> I, guess, uh, I guess God's working in you too. I guess you can say funky stuff, and I can be okay with it. Because you know what? My acceptance is in Christ. And that's where my, all my hope and stay is. So we have the, the communion here. We're going to have a couple songs. To remember the Lord. Right? We have a new covenant in his blood. That he paid it all. That's the new covenant. <laughs> Pretty great covenant, right? If you trust me, you're forever saved. If you trust me, I've forgiven your sins. Like, I mean, I'm on board with this covenant. I don't know about you guys. And then he says, and you know, the other thing I want you to remember, I, I want you to remember my body. You know, he could have said a million things. You guys better remember my body. You better remember the praetorium. You better read Luke 24 every time. You better, this is how it's going down. And you better feel bad when you eat that. But he didn't, right? He goes, I was so excited to have this Last Supper with you. That's what he told him. I was so excited to eat with you guys tonight. Yeah, you're all going to ditch me tonight. And one of you is going to betray me. But I'm super excited to eat this meal with you, right? And then he says, and he says, but when you eat, I want you to remember my body, that it was given for you. So this is not a somber time. It's not a time to be bummed out, guilt-ridden. That's not what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to examine ourselves, we're told. Consider, is, is Christ my all? And, and, and if the answer is no, then to, to confess it, right? Lord, you, I want you to be my all. I love the prayer of the, of the man with the demon-possessed son. It's my favorite prayer. That's how wimpy I am. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Such a fantastic prayer. That's how we examine ourselves. Lord, I, uh, 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 I believe, help my unbelief. 
But I, I want to believe you all the time. Lord, forgive my, my nature, how it just crops up. And he says, and, he gets, and then so let the meat. Remember that his whole life was given for you, and remember that we have a new deal in the blood of Jesus, and then his forgiveness. And that's what this is for. So we'll pray, and we'll sing some songs. You'd be surprised. I went long. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know how that happened. But uh, if you got to go, like, it's cool. I understand. But if you'd like to stick around uh, for, for the, the Lord's Supper, that would be great. Also, if you're new with us, we try to do, like, this circular thing, because otherwise it's like Seattle traffic in the middle. So, Father, thank you for your great kindness and grace to us. Thank you for the promises of your word. Lord, thank you that you've always done well. Well, you've never done anything wrong, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we just confess that sometimes we aren't interested in what you have to say, or we think our way is better, and we just want to repent of that. We want to turn from that, Lord. Lord, we want to invite your Holy Spirit back into our life to shed abroad your love, to shed abroad your, your kindness, to, to, to bear fruit in us. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity to remember you until you return. And Lord, thank you that you are returning. You're coming again, and we... Look forward to um, being with you forever. And Lord, in the meantime, thank you for the lives you've given us. We thank you for our trials. Thank you for the good times. And uh, thank you that you're still working. So we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.